welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we're here with a guest, Peter Fraze today. He is the author of Four Futures and a writer for Jacobin, as well as a number of other publications. How you doing, Peter? Good. Uh, thanks for having me on to your uh, internet chat space. <laughs> it's all internet chat spaces now. I never before this pandemic used Zoom before, but I've been on like seven Zoom calls in the last week because that's kind of all you can do now. So, yeah, I mean, we've, you've all seen the memes, right? How Zoom is like the real culprit behind this global pandemic. Oh, it's like a false flag. They let the uh, virus out so they could make more business. Yeah, their stock prices are going up, up, up. Oh yeah, well, and that was one of the stories, right? With the um, the senator, one of the senators who sold off their stocks after getting briefed about the pandemic. Not only did they sell off stocks, but they bought stock in like remote meeting companies. Oh, right, right. They sold a Carnival Cruise stock and Delta <laughs> stock and bought Gilead Pharmaceutical <laughs> stock and Zoom stock. I'm not even kidding. No, I know. <laughs> but it was a blind trust, so right, Little right. Did they know that Carnival Cruise Lines is going to be just fine? Because as our friend Matt Crisman said. It's harder for people to imagine the end of capitalism than the end of Carnival Cruise Lines. Oh, wait, did I fuck that up? I fucked that up. It's easy. You know what I mean. Close enough. And he's not cutting it, so, you know. It's easier for people to imagine the end of the world than the end of Carnival Cruise Lines. There you go. Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) Boom. Second time's the charm. So, um, yeah, besides uh, doing a lot of uh, video conference calls, how's everybody doing? Um, I'm doing all right. I definitely had a little freak out the other day after talking to my mother, who means well, but is, you know, a little neurotic um, and thinks I was like pretty afraid and sure that I'm going to fucking die if I stay in New York City. So I had a moment when I was like, wait, should I leave? And I was like, fuck no, that's stupid. Um, No offense to my mom, who's probably listening, but I'm a healthy-ish person and I'm going to stay here and obey the CDC and um, not spread the disease to rural Pennsylvania. Also, I've been having some remote reading groups with my DSA caucus emerge, which has been pretty fun. Um, we had one on the lumpen proletariat. Well, it wasn't only on the lumpen proletariat, but we talked a lot about the lumpen proletariat the other day. And it was nice just to see everyone. Um, I've been talking to the cats so much that uh i'm starting to get served ads on instagram based on our private conversations so i remembered to turn my uh, microphone access off for that Uh, i'm still part of dsa's mutual aid network and i have been watching tiger king although i should probably kick the cats out next time i watch it because i don't want them to get any ideas i've been watching this show on hbo called succession which I think everybody was freaking out about a couple of years ago. It's uh, rich people behaving very badly. It's like Rupert, the story of Rupert Murdoch and Fox, basically. But uh, while it's enjoyable, I think it leaves a bit to be desired because like all liberal TV, the thesis of it is that, you know, these people are bad because they're bad people, you know, like uh, capitalism and exploitation is just sort of like, you know, taken as a matter of course. But we're supposed to be like so uh, completely shocked by how evil they are. Anyways, enjoyable show. And I have been doing uh, some reading myself uh, after years 
of uh, the refraction through David Harvey of uh, Marx's uh, theories of circulation. I'm now on Capital Volume 2, and I'm banging through it, so it's all good. It's all It's plenty of time to read. Oh, Volume 2. Well, I'm reading Volume 3. So <laughs> oh, it's a little own. bit more advanced, but maybe you'll catch up someday. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping to... Uh, get into the Mets this season, Ooh. maybe find someone nice to date as it turns to spring. But instead, I'm just reading volume three in my room. So that's great. Thanks a lot, Virus. <laughs> Peter, uh, you were telling us before we started recording that um, things are uh, interesting up in Newburgh, right? Yeah. So, uh, right. So I live up in Newburgh in Hudson Valley, which for people who don't know is a small, pretty poor working class, mostly non-white uh, deindustrialized city about 60 miles north of New York City, uh, and on Friday evening, um, the cops killed a guy, uh, and the town is pretty much in uproar about that. Uh, you know, people were burning stuff in the streets on Friday night. There's a protest going on at the police station right now, I believe, uh, and, you know, everything is uh, tense on top of, you know, what we were already dealing with, with everything being shut down and trying to get a handle on uh, slowing the spread of the pandemic. Oi, oi, oi. I think that one of the interesting things about that is I think we've talked about this on this show before and other people have too, is kind of the limits of what's possible in terms of demonstrations and even organizing uh, in the depths of this pandemic, because obviously there's a contradiction between having to socially distance in order to flatten the curve on the one hand, but also, of course, these continuing inequities of capitalism, like, I don't know, police shooting people, uh, continuing and make it very difficult for us to do our normal forms of uh, direct action. So yeah, and it's a it's a big it's a big problem. I mean, I'm also you know I'm on the steering committee of a DSA chapter up here. We've been you know spending a lot of time on Zoom calls as well, but trying to figure out what we can do, how we can retool you know everything from electoral work to break light clinics that we were doing before. Uh, just this afternoon, some of my comrades went down, those who had some comrades who have cars went down to a protest at the Orange County Jail, which is also an ICE detention center, just driving around, you know, honking horns to protest and, you know, demand people be let out there. But yeah, it's hard to figure out how we can balance the demands of staying safe in the pandemic and continuing to organize when it's more necessary than ever. Word. I think we are going to be thinking and talking about that a lot in the coming days, weeks, potentially months. So jumping into the meat of our episode, um, we're going to be discussing the four futures uh, as well as the one that we really seem to be headed for. Um, Peter wrote a book on the subject called Four Futures. I guess uh, I'll go through what the four futures are. It's a work of social science fiction, right? Like using... uh, using a, a kind of speculative uh, lens to talk about the different ways that our society might be headed uh, while acknowledging that it is, you know, a thought experiment and acknowledging the limitations of that. So, you know, certain certain details have been smoothed over for the purposes of the thought experiment. But um, he takes a few different factors into account. Um, I feel like Peter could probably explain this better than me, but you know what? I'm going to keep going. Um he takes uh, as kind of a given that um, automation will continue to progress. And unlike uh, in the past, it's actually going to lead to a decrease in the demand for wage labor. 
Oh my God, the cat's being so cute. Stop it. I'm trying to pod. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I just got a kitten. She likes to, anyway, cut that out. Um, so yes, automation is going to decrease this, the, the demand for work in a way that it has not in the past. And that is in and of itself kind of a controversial supposition, but let's go with it. So that is the constant in these four futures. And the variables are whether we're going to continue a society of hierarchy or uh, get some measure of equality and uh, how much we're going to be able to solve the problems of climate change, which lead to scarcity. So on that axis, the four futures are communism, which is, of course, equality and abundance, socialism, which is equality and scarcity, rentism, which is abundance and hierarchy, and exterminism, which is scarcity and hierarchy. So with the help of Peter Fraze, we're going to talk about which of the four futures we might be headed for. Um, it's exterminism, isn't it? Hate to, hate to be a spoiler. Well, you know, I... Uh... First of all, Jamie, thank you for giving that excellent summary so I didn't have to do it for the millionth time. Um, but uh, yeah, well, so the thing there's I deploy a number of old sort of science fictional and social science cliches in that in that book, one of which you already uh, used the one about the end of the world being easier to imagine than the end of capitalism. One of the other ones is uh, the line from William Gibson that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So the point then and even more the point now is that all of the futures are in one way or another happening now, uh, and that includes the exterminist future. Um, the interesting thing to me, I guess, about the way it was received, you know, is that, you know, this book came out over three years ago now, and the ideas in it, you know, I had been developing for years before that. And back in the early part of me developing and writing and talking about this, people got to the one I call exterminism, the one which is about scarcity and hierarchy and has the sort of most bleak outlook in certain ways. People got to that one and sort of treated it in a lot of the reviews or when they reacted to it as being just kind of over the top. They're like, you know, I see what you're saying here, but uh, that one seems like it's a little outlandish. And as the years have gone by, and uh, I think more and more the reaction I get is like, well, we all know that's the one that's coming, right? Mm. Hey. Oof. So of the four futures in the last three years, we've uh, been in the groove towards the worst one, the really, really bad one. Uh, you want to talk about what some of those dynamics are, or at least remind us, because I think we're all probably somewhat aware. Right. So the starting point of that future is, you know, I'm taking this like sort of four quadrant diagram that the whole book is based on and looking at the quadrant that says, OK, what if we eliminate the need for a lot of human labor in a context where we still have this massively unequal stratified class society and massively unequal power relations, right? And also a severe ecological crisis such that material abundance for all is constrained just by the limits of the Earth's kind of capacity to support us. And the thing that I observed is that that kind of breaks down one of the historical contradictions that has always underpinned capitalism, which is this situation where the mass of us you know, don't own anything and don't control our societies, but also our labor is necessary to make it go. And so as much as the capitalists find us unpleasant and dirty and ornery and difficult to deal with, they need us uh, to run the shops, run the factories, 
and ultimately do the labor that produces their profit. Uh, and that's sort of the motor of the class struggle that drives history under capitalism. But that if you are able to make large numbers of those workers superfluous in one way or another, we just become sort of excess bodies that aren't useful for capital accumulation, then that's a very dangerous situation, right? Because it puts the capitalist class in a position of saying, well, if all of these people are no longer useful for capital accumulation, but they're competing for the same scarce resources and scarce habitable environments that we want, then we would just be better off getting rid of them. And that can mean, you know, everything from simply allowing people to die through neglect, through, you know, poverty and hunger and disease, uh, all the way up to sort of genocide as we understood that term in the 20th century. So that seems very relevant to what we've been dealing with right now with the global pandemic, as well as the bourgeois state's response to it, particularly here in the hyper-capitalist country of the United States. Yeah, and you wrote a new article in Jacobin uh, concerning that, and I thought it was really good, called The Party of Death. So I wanted to ask you, some questions about this uh, this party of death, because for a minute there, it seemed like the GOP was showing some signs of getting to the left of the Democrats on economic issues and becoming more like one of the traditional far right parties of Europe, which was terrifying to anyone who knows the history of fascism. Right. But judging from the corporate bailout package that just passed, uh, it really doesn't seem like they're going to do that, which is, you know, both good and bad, right? It's bad because people will suffer. It's good because we're not getting at least any traditional concept of fascism here. Um, And still, Trump's approval rating is going up. So what does it say about the conditions in this country that they don't even have to take these basic material provisions for the non-wealthy parts of their base into account? Um, Is it just that political identity has shifted so fully into the cultural sphere that it doesn't matter or people are just like cucked and they're ready to lay down their lives for the market? Well, I mean, first of all, I would caution you know, in a moment like this to be wary of assigning too much strategic foresight or insight to anyone, including our enemies. You know, we are all, we're confused right now, but so are they. And I think what's happening in some ways reflects that. Because look, I'm, I'm almost 40 years old. This is easily the biggest crisis of society, of capitalist economies that I have experienced in my lifetime. And you know, I, I think that's that's clear, and it's becoming more clear by the day. And the you know people in charge of both politics and economics in this country don't know how to react to that. And I think that explains a lot of this sort of wavering back and forth to are they going to try for sort of a fascist you know response to social democracy, or, or are they just going to try to press ahead with bailouts and business as usual? Because there's just a fundamental contradiction happening here, which is that the demands of capital accumulation demand one thing, which is that we all go out and work and consume and that these the sort of the epidemiology demands another thing which is that we hunker down and try to slow the spread of the pandemic uh and that you know also we do other things like have free health care for everyone if we really want to get through this and i think it's a genuine contradiction i think that's why you see you know this press at first there was this sort of yeah this false move towards maybe we can just like have like the right wing basic income and we can sort of do it that way 
And now it seems to be veering back in the direction of sort of denialism and saying we're just going to get everyone to go back to work and, you know, get back to business as usual because the, you know, the people that have Donald Trump's ear as well as the people who write columns in the New York Times, some of them, think at this point, oh, it's just like we can't handle this stock market falling and the, you know, millions and millions of people applying for unemployment. And I think they're just like unable to to sort of reckon with the scale of the crisis because it's because any real solution would be right or left solution would would sort of radically transform the parameters of what this country and what the global economy looks like. Uh, and and so and then just to like a last point on what you were saying about like Trump's approval rating, I think also we have to think about the both very rapid and very geographically and socially uneven spread of this pandemic. Which is like, if you're in New York City, like it's on top of you right now, and you know how bad it is. Uh, up here, even sixty miles north, we're in a different, a different world. By which I mean the world of a week ago in New York City. And if in other parts of the country, they're a little behind that. So I think it's uh, it's also easy to sort of underestimate the degree to which this hasn't caught up with people in a lot of places. Uh, and so we we have to be kind of mindful of that and attentive to that in our sort of political work. Uh, to realize that like this is still catching up with people both in a literal sense of people around them aren't dying yet and also in a larger ideological and psychological sense of like it's not quite sunk in for people how fundamentally everything has changed. Yeah, I also read that uh, Trump might be saving uh, the resources for swing states. So that's like another really depressing aspect of this. Uh, like he, New York, he 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 basically told New York to drop dead, right? Uh, but he's probably going to send all the ventilators to Florida. So I don't know what that says about our present moment, but nothing good. It's, it's just a, the old neoliberalism with some real, just raw gangsterism laid on the top of it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you referenced some of the things that would need to happen in order for the United States, as well as the world at large, to effectively deal with this horrible thing that's happening. So with, within a global capitalist framework, which is what we have now for the foreseeable future, um, are there steps that we could or should be taking to stem the tide of this pandemic without throwing the world into a recession, right? Because it's kind of an impossible double bind that we're in right now because as much as we hate it, um, if the economy fails, the effects are going to come down on the most oppressed people. And that's what always happens. That's what we saw in the 2008 financial crisis, right? We had to save the banks somehow because they had us by the balls. Uh, but on the other hand, <laughs> it would involve the deaths of millions of people if we really want to you know, get the economy going again. Um, what what are some things that we could or should be doing in this current world? Maybe maybe you want to talk about some of the things other countries have been doing that are slightly better than the U.S. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly. I mean, one of the things that other rich countries have been able to do that we haven't is give everyone free health care which oh, helped yeah. oh yeah that thing you know whenever you read a story about like how south korea got a handle on the pandemic they did all kinds of things some of which are quite admirable some of which are a little bit creepy in their invasion of privacy some of which might be specific to south korea but you know 
looming over all of it is the fact that everyone there has free health care. And it makes it a lot easier to get a handle on something like this when, you know, you're not – people are – you know, the fact that people are still having to worry about being bankrupted if they show up at a hospital, I mean, is, is maddening and it's insane, but it's where we are. So that's – you know, that's obviously kind of the big one, and it's one of one of a number of ones, the most only the most obvious of a number of things that we might call the disaster socialist menu of options here, where lots of things that we were pushing for and that we needed before are even more important and are more obviously important in the context of what's happening right now. So there's that, and then, of course, there's the fact that other countries, you know, Denmark being one of the more prominent examples, but many other countries have done similar things where they're finding ways to support people's income, whether it's by sending checks to people directly or whether it's by finding various ways to kind of prop up the wages of people who would otherwise lose their jobs. So you sort of, you give a bailout in a sense to businesses, but it's a bailout that takes the form of we're going to give you money only if you keep paying your workers. Um, And so that's a way to try to kind of keep things in a state of kind of suspended animation because the idea is that if you let all these people get fired, like the three million people that were in the last uh, unemployment numbers, not only do those people lose their jobs, lose their income, potentially lose their health insurance, potentially then can't pay their rent and so on and so forth, but then also even if they get through the crisis, then afterwards, you know, those a lot of those businesses have gone bust or those, you know, those sort of ties between employers and employees and between businesses have all been destroyed. And so it's like you can't just sort of start over easily again. And so the idea is that you can try to kind of bridge the gap by just having, you know, basically the government print money and use it to prop up businesses on the understanding that like this is however long it's going to take for us to get to a place where we no longer have to all be quarantining ourselves. It is going to be temporary. And so that at some point things can start up again. Um, That's that's at least something. I don't think that's on a number of levels, I don't think that's enough, in part because the economy was pretty fragile. The global economy was built on enormous amounts of debt and was already pretty fragile going into this. So I think even in the best-case scenario, we're not talking about a situation where we're going to be able to just reboot everything and get back to normal again, um, which, again, gets back to what I was talking about before, the idea that this crisis is fundamental and has changed everything in a fundamental way such that nobody, including the ruling class, uh, has quite come to terms with it or quite knows what to do about it. Uh, but certainly there are things that can be done at least to make people's lives easier, allow people to survive the current moment and prevent it from being even more cataclysmic than it has to be. I don't want to be a vulgar materialist here, but I want to do, I mean, I usually am, but uh, I do want to uh, kind of talk about uh, this with a historical periodization. I think you've seen an absolute failure of uh, the capitalist state in the U.S. and also in Britain to prepare for something that should have been prepared for. And then once it came to actually put measures in place that could mitigate, you know, the worst of this, I think it's it's pretty easy for us to look at Donald Trump and Trumpism uh, to look at the right wing of the Republican Party and say that that is merely ideology, that they merely have this small government uh, conception of the world. And so it's it's politics that necessarily have to change on that level. When I think that thinking of exterminism, when you were uh, talking about it earlier, you were talking about it in terms of um, scarcity of resources. But I think over the last 
40, 50 years, we've seen a sort of uh, pre-exterminist setup uh, just because the rate of profit has fallen. You know, in the United States, and just because uh, more and more members of the working class are becoming superfluous in a globalized world, you know, the fact that so much, so many of our supply chains are chains are international now means that national bourgeoisies do not have the same interest that they had before. You know, in uh, keeping many of us alive. So I guess that it's a roundabout way of saying how much of this do you think is material? How much of this is uh, ideological? And where do those two things intersect? I mean, I think it's both, obviously, and it's there's a there is a material foundation to the ideology. They're not one to one correspondences, but there is there's what you're talking about in terms of profit rates. There's also the fact the other side of that is that to the extent that mass amounts of our labor have been employed over the recent period, it's been in the form of precarious and low wage and no benefits kinds of work. Which have left, you know, left the entire system very precarious in the face of a shock like this pandemic. When you have people who are working at jobs where they don't have insurance, they're that have no job guarantees, they have, you know, no ability to accumulate any savings, so they have to keep going into work even if they're at risk of getting sick. And then if anything goes wrong, you know, they can't pay rent. And then there's a cask, you know, there's a cascading effect that happens there. So I think this sort of like. You know, to the extent you know, to the extent that we were holding off that exterminist world of everyone being rendered superfluous, it was by us being immiserated to the point where right. the capitalist class could employ us at the cheapest, you know, the, at the cheapest rates possible. But that meant that sort of it was like a you know a a just in time system for producing a labor force where if you break any link in the chain, all of a sudden it, there's just like mass chaos and mass human misery because there's just like there's no give in it, there's no safety net, and there's no People have no ability basically to be resilient in the face of something like this. Uh, it just like leads to crisis almost immediately. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I think we've seen that uh, just-in-time reproduction of human lives and the fact that there's only as many ventilators and uh, ICU beds in this country as like – some uh, actuary figured would be needed under normal conditions, like the worst case scenario. So we need like four, five, six, seven, eight times more of these ventilators than we have because healthcare was run just in time. You know, don't don't warehouse anything, don't stockpile. Right, and to and sorry, to, but just to like speak to your to your point, like what you were saying before about this not just being about sort of like the right wing or sort of Trumpist ideology or view of government, right? In New York, you've got Andrew Cuomo playing a hero on TV while he's still trying to cut uh, Medicaid at this very moment, you know, and he has been behind the cuts to hospitals throughout the state. He's like, he's, he's the reason, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the big reasons why New York's hospitals are so poorly prepared for what's happening right now. Yeah. And not to mention that just in time, uh, production, applies to social reproduction in that so many people, right? The service sector is a increasingly large share of our economy. And I include, you know, uh, gig workers in that. Uh, people are living paycheck to paycheck. You know, maybe you can make a living driving Uber or bartending, but there's really no margin there for any kind of disruption whatsoever. So 
what we're seeing now is people who have no savings, not because they are stupid or lazy, but because the system is not really set up to provide them any cushion. Uh, as soon as they're out of work, they're fucked. I think it was the avocado toast. <laughs> I think they should have made coffee at home. Yeah, that's that's it. That's the culprit. Yeah, I mean, I was reading a lot about uh, our dear governor, Andrew Cuomo's response to this disaster and was pretty upset. I mean, not surprised, but just angry all over again to find out that he had hired a group of consultants even before this happened to try to cut uh, make cuts to Medicaid and to public hospitals using the idea of just-in-time production. Where, like you said, if there are any extra beds at any point, that's considered waste under this rubric. And if there's a bottleneck of people waiting, that's good because it means that you're operating at max capacity. It it just really lays bare the contradiction between uh, capitalism, particularly neoliberal capitalism under which we live now and human life. There was an interesting article today in the New York Times and... Their takeaway was, I think, a little bit different from what mine would be, but it described in 2007 this drive to create a stockpile, a federal stockpile of ventilators, just, you know, in case something like this happens. Um, so what the federal government did is they made a, they did an order for a very low price uh, for this small company in California to design like a really cheap, you know, very efficient ventilator that they could stockpile like 60,000, 70,000 of. Anyways, the contract was like $3,000 per ventilator that the government got it for. The company designed it and started to make it. But then a larger medical equipment company bought the smaller company and decided that after all this R&D and all this tooling in their shop to make this thing really cheap, that the contract wasn't good enough and they were just going to let it go. So none of these things ever got made because a larger company didn't see any profit in getting this done. And because of the way that government works with the private sector, we never had a chance to get another contract and we never got those ventilators. So thanks to the free market, um, yeah, thousands and thousands of people. Right. And right. Which is sort of and it's sort of that's sort of an example of another aspect of the like my for future schema, which is the sort of rentist attempt to profit through monopolistic control over aspects of the market and you know if you liked the if you loved the the story of uh, capitalism and the ventilators wait till to wait till till we get to the part about the intellectual property and the covid-19 vaccine oh god i hadn't even thought about that that sucks so bad i want to ask a question along those lines peter in your book you talk about intellectual property um, and you also mentioned this concept from uh, keynes of euthanizing the rentier class um, do you see any connection between the concept of the vaccine being uh, and, and also other medical technologies now being it being necessary to sort of liberate these and make them mass producible at volume despite the copyrights as connected to the concept of a rent strike that's generalizing? Sure. I mean, the the whole concept, what I you know, of what I called rentism that I draw out in the book is, as you say, it like centers on intellectual property as kind of the modern or postmodern form that this takes when we're talking about patents and copyrights and people controlling the right to make certain drugs or to, you know, own copyrights over movies or whatever. But of course, all of the, both the political and economic and social theory of rent and rentiers goes back to a time when the dominant force in society was, was landlords. 
and that was the context the contest over access to the land was kind of the defining social contradiction and the idea that sort of developed in early capitalism was that you had there was a distinction between kind of the the capitalists who like produced stuff like had a factory and hired workers and made stuff versus the rentier uh, like a landlord who the landlord just gets money for owning something right you own the land or you own the apartment building and anybody else wants to use it anybody else wants to access it they have to pay you for it and the same the idea is the same with something like a vaccine that's has a patent granted to only one company and in both cases it is the state that creates this form of property and creates this right that says that you have the right to monopolize access either to land or to the formula for a vaccine and nobody else has the right to do anything with it. And so, yeah, what we're seeing now is both, yeah, we're seeing the intellectual property aspect of it happen or we're going to see it happen with respect to things like a vaccine, but we are seeing on, in a big way, and we're gonna see it in a much bigger way come April 1st, that a lot of people can't pay their rent and a lot of landlords are being exposed for what they are, which is people that are just extracting money uh, by virtue of being in a position to have a state-sanctioned control of something uh, and for no other reason. Yeah, it seems to me like this might create an opportunity for bringing struggle into the realm of Social reproduction, specifically people's homes, in a way that it hasn't before. I mean, a lot of people criticize this idea of having a nationwide rent strike as, oh, it's just a meme, which is fair, right? Like, it takes more than some tweets to organize a rent strike. And if you're the only one in your building who does it, you are just going to be fucking yourself over in the end and probably get evicted when this three-month moratorium is over. But... um do you think there's a way that we can sort of use this moment and the massive numbers of people who can't pay their rent anyway um, and turn it into a more organized uh, network of resistance, even bringing in people who haven't previously been involved in these kinds of struggles? I mean, I certainly hope so. And there's at least some hopeful movement in terms of what I'm seeing, you know, where I am locally and all, but also what I'm, what I'm hearing of elsewhere in terms of people, you know, people on the, the pre-existing organized left, but also people just spontaneously picking up this idea of a rent strike. And you're right. There's, there's plenty to be criticized about the sort of, uh, in some cases, irresponsibility of just sort of throwing out everybody don't pay your rent without having any organizing behind it. But I think another way to look at the situation we're in now is that, to a certain extent, people have sort of seized on that, you know, just ordinary people who can't pay their rent because, again, the scale of this crisis, the scale of this situation is that there's large numbers of people who simply cannot pay and are just trying to figure out a way to survive and maybe in a position where they at least have neighbors that they can talk to, that they can work with, uh, and in order to try to come up with some organized resistance to this. Because I do think that's that's one of the aspects of this crisis where again the the ruling class is also just not dealing with this at the scale that it needs to be dealt with they're trying to pretend it can go back to normal i mean even if you look for example at some of the debates we've had on the left about the stimulus proposals and about the idea of sending checks to everyone right the $1200 a month or the $2000 a month or whatever or $2000 one time or $1200 one time whatever it's going to be and one of the critiques of that is like if you don't do something to like suspend people's rents 
that's just money that just goes into somebody's pocket and goes right out again to pay the landlord, right? It just bails out the landlords. But that's even that, even if it happens that way, which is obviously not what should happen and what we need to fight against. But even if it did happen that way, that's just a stopgap. Like that's not going to resolve the underlying issue here, which is like, again, un- you know, all time record unemployment uh, claims last week. You know, we're going to like not even talk, forget a recession. We're in a recession. We may be in a depression. We're going uncharted territory here. And a lot of the thing that I think that just like has to be at the basis of a lot of our politics right now is there are a lot of debts now that are not going to be paid. And that ranges all the way down from corporate debts down to, you know, medical and student debts to people's rent. Like one way or another, a lot, they just the, the material sort of foundation here is many of these debts can never be paid. And the question is how how is this all going to be settled? How is this going to be sorted out in the end? Because it's not going to be, no matter how much the ruling class might like it, it's not going to be by all the landlords getting paid. I just think that we've reached a point where that's clearly impossible. Right. So, right, so uh, similar to 2008, it's going to be a question of who's holding the bag at the end. Right. And, you know, we already see like the, you know, the private equity firms and, you know, big corporate chains and whoever else are getting into position to try and like, clean up when all the small, you know, when all the, when small, all the small businesses go under and the renters get evicted and so on, like it's going to be vicious. Um, but yeah, it's whatever comes out of this period is not going to look anything like what it looked like even a few months. The way I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, uh, I'm also inspired by the idea of tenant organizing, um, because we need certain we need a vision for how to organize the proletariat uh which is you know a slippery category but i think we all have a basic understanding of what it is outside of the traditional workplace right and this hooks into a lot of what you're talking about in your book because as demand for labor becomes less and less um it's going to become more important I mean, we still need to do labor organizing, certainly in the present and probably medium term, but we also need to be looking outside of that to alternate modes of organizing for people who are excluded from the traditional economy, which is going to continue to grow. So I'm thinking about tenant organizing. Um, I'm thinking about transit riders, which we've talked about before on this show. And I'm thinking about the welfare rights movement of the 60s and 70s, which I think was another inspiring example of how people can bring that struggle into the realm of social reproduction or everything that happens outside of the workplace. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think social reproduction is a good, I mean, I think social reproduction is a good way to to frame it. I mean, one, one way I've sort of thought about what's happening right now is that, you can understand a lot about what's at stake in the present crisis through a combination of like anti-work politics and social reproduction theory. Because on the one hand, as everything closes down and everyone get and lots of people get sent home, you we start to sort of call the question that some of us on the left have long tried to call or tried to sort of demand policies that would call, which is like how much of the stuff that people are forced to do for wages, how much of it is just kind of bullshit. Uh, but at the same time, we're exposing the bones of the of the system of social reproduction, some of which is unpaid labor that happens in households, in communities, in contexts outside of the wage relation. But we're also seeing how all the parts of the chain of wage social reproduction workers, everything 
from childcare workers to teachers to grocery store workers to sanitation workers. Uh, those are the legitimately essential workers who are being who are forced to go to work now in these incredibly dangerous conditions and also who are going on wildcat strikes and are making all kinds of demands and are organizing, you know, that like, you know, organizing in the Amazon warehouses where they're, you know, fighting back against not being given protection and not being given sick leave and all that. So it's sort of, we're simultaneously kind of blowing away the myth that a lot of this, you know, late capitalist wage labor is necessary while revealing the elements of the parts of the system of paid and unpaid labor that really are, you know, necessary to the system of social reproduction. You know, at the same time, um, you know, and I, I agree that like automation opens up this potentiality for people to work far less, like less hours and get rid of a lot of jobs that are bullshit jobs. Um, and you say in your book that freedom begins where work ends. Yet, I think a lot of people, how they understand this crisis and how they understand uh, defeating it is returning to normalcy. And for a lot of people, returning to normalcy means going back to work, even really miserable bullshit jobs. Um, so I guess, I guess I, I'm wondering if uh, that's kind of a limit in how much you know uh, of an awakening or potential that we have in this crisis is that people are um, even kind of on the same side as the capitalist class and just wanting to get the ec- economy moving again. Well, yes. I mean, in a sense, you're right. Uh, you're, there's certainly that, that desire. I mean, I think, you know, especially now as we, as the weeks start to go by and, you know, and like self-isolation and working from home and taking and homeschooling your kids and all of that starts to go from a novelty to this just thing that starts to seem like horrifying to contemplate doing forever – People do have that desire, but I would again go back to this idea that normal's not coming back, right? Like, if we had had this conversation a year ago or even a few months ago, I would have been more inclined to say, you know, that there's a kind of a cultural struggle, an ideological struggle that has to happen around the idea of work and the investment and identification with work and the way we think about what our social normal is when it comes to work. But now, I think we're so much of that has been upended, and it's going to be so difficult to go back. Which is not to say that you know there isn't a way to reconstruct the kind of capitalist world of work in which people spend huge amounts of their time doing crap that is unnecessary. Uh, there, there certainly is, and there's there's ways in which we get there in even worse ways, right? You know, to like the to take just like one example from a field I happen to know because it's one I used to be in and where I know a lot of people, but like a lot of these like un- college professors and other teachers who are now trying to teach from home. In addition to all the other problems with that, are concerned that this will be used by administrators to just push toward distance learning as the norm, right, to save money. There are ways to get back to a new normal that is not better than the normal we have now, but I'm less concerned that actually getting back to normal is the impediment to revolutionary change, if that makes sense. Like, yes, now people both in the working class and the ruling class are still clinging to that fantasy, but I think it is a fantasy. I think that the, you know the material constraints, the material conditions, and also the sort of structural economic conditions of all the things we've been talking about, all the limits that have been exposed of both social reproduction and of the like, sort of the limits of capital accumulation and profitability, all that stuff has been exposed in a way that doesn't just get swept under the rug again once the pandemic is somewhat under control. I think something fundamentally will change. And again, it's not necessarily in a good way, but something will change. So I think that 
the problem of everyone just wanting to go back to normal will in a certain sense be, you know, people will be educated by reality about that. Our task is to build, you know, radical revolutionary alternatives so that we're not stuck with the reactionary alternatives that will otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I also think that a lot of the reason why people are eager to go back to work isn't necessarily because they like their jobs or working, but because they that's how they make money. And under capitalism, money is what you need in order to access a basic standard of living for yourself. So uh, the alternative to that is, you know, getting rid of work and communism, right? Which is also a fantasy on some level. Um, I also think some people really like the thing that they do for work and would probably do it in a post-capitalist society. But the way things are structured right now, the way you do that is through your job. So, but, but I think, I think more people just like don't like working, but they don't see any alternative in gaining access to the basic necessities of life. And it's up to us crazy communists to try to convince them that there is another way. And maybe that's a good transition into talking about um, the communist chapter of your book. Yeah. Um, did you just want me to just sort of, I don't know, jump into into what that's about or how that le- applies? Sure. sure. Um, so, right. So, I mean, that you know, what I call communism in the book is kind of occupies the quadrant on the opposite end of the spectrum from exterminism that we were talking about earlier, which is all about, you know, inequality and a murderous ruling class. The other side of that is imagining, well, what if, you know, we could take advantage of automation to work less, if we could reconstruct our economy in a more ecologically sensible way, which would also involve all of us probably working less, uh, then what you know? What would we be able to do with the time freed up? What kind of new forms of life would be we'd be able to build for ourselves? And so, you know, in the book, I you know I play around as you know as I do in all of the chapters of this book, I use science fiction as like a lens into uh, into sort of thinking about possible other ways of living. And the 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 thing that I use in that chapter, which is in some ways one of the points of departure for the entire project was Star Trek, which, you know, I grew up watching and, and loving, which, oh, yeah. which is like, you know, and Star Trek, the next generation in particular, because that's my, my generation Star Trek. And it's the one that I think goes the heaviest on the post-scarcity and post-capitalist themes that were always present in that universe, which is that they have, you know, unlimited clean energy. They have replicators, which are devices that can make anything without any input of human labor. And so, you know, if there are people getting on a starship and flying around to meet aliens, it's not because they have to do it to make a living. It's not because they've been drafted into Starfleet. It's because that's what they want to do. That's like, that's where what they find fulfilling in life. And so that opens up a lens onto like imagining, you know, sort of like you were saying, you know, like what happens once you get past this idea of like, well, I might hate my job, but like, what else is there? What else could I possibly do? Uh, and that you know and that gets us back to everything from the you know the kind of promise of the early internet of just like everybody can share everything and make things and make them available for free and just kind of get involved in whatever project tickles their fancy but it also applies to like you know the sort of the more 
you know, physically material mutual aid projects that are springing up now to just try and, right now, just fill in gaps with, that are being left within the shell of the capitalist system, but that in a different, more abundant, more post-capitalist future might be the basis of how we think to organize our time and also organize social reproduction if we weren't constantly, you know, compelled to take whatever crappy job just be in order to, to pay our rent and pay our bills and pay our premiums and so on. Yeah, I really really like the the quote quote. you pulled out from uh, Marx's critique of the Gotha program to show how under communism, labor becomes life's prime want, right? Abolishing the distinction between work and leisure time. People do things that they find fulfillment in. Um, Sometimes that might look like, you know, writing a song or whatever. And sometimes that might look like engaging in a public works project to save the planet and make it habitable for humanity um so but in in reference to the distinction between socialism and communism um i think the what the factor that distinguishes them in your book right is scarcity um and how you know if we have scarcity still which we probably always will um in the real world um we're gonna need some like state level coordinated projects in order to fix things as well as to distribute resources in an equitable way. Um, And I guess, what's my question here? Um, Like, couldn't those projects, those very projects fall under the category of life's prime want, right? Like, is, is communism necessarily dependent on the finding a magical source of infinite free energy? Because if so, uh, we are all barking up the wrong tree. I mean, it's the magical source of free energy is in some ways just an exaggeration of where we can and must go, I think. I mean, you're, you're right to identify that the question of the state is central to how I distinguish the kind of communist and socialist aspects of what I'm doing with that book. Uh, and again, you know, the purpose of it was on, in, on one level to sketch out sort of imagined, four imagined futures, but on another level was just to identify four different aspects of the present. And if one aspect of the present is us finding ways to make, you know, make our labors, our life's prime wants within the interstices of the capitalist system, the other aspect of it is what are the more sort of centralized or state-directed projects that are necessary to manage, manage such scarcity as exists and move us away from the destructive path that we're on. So, like, the other day I made a, you know, I posted a, a quick meme I threw together where I took the four quadrants of my book and just stuck some headlines from the present day into each one of them to kind of underscore this point. And so in the communism quadrant, I had this stuff about like, you know, everything from people with 3D printers making new parts for ventilators in Italy to um, some comrades I know who put together uh, a website that allows you to schedule, to do dynamic scheduling for your childcare cooperative. Um, and then, but then on the other, in the socialism quadrant, what I had was stuff about what we now call the Green New Deal, which is the kind of socialist and social democratic project of doing a systematic state-based pro- based project, both of sort of social democratic, you know, investment 
in public works and job creation and so on, but also in the process getting us onto some kind of more sustainable energy base, which, yeah, it's not the dilithium crystals and antimatter system of Star Trek, but it's a hell of a lot closer to that than what we have now. Uh, and so I think that's the dialectic of those two things is, is kind of the one that we have to be playing with for the foreseeable future on the left. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've not super read up on what makes something a state versus not a state and the difference between government and governance. I'm sure Sean and Andy know more about it than I do. But um, Oh, no, not me. No, no. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm not touching that one. Uh, I was wondering, like, how you think a stateless or, or some form of communist society would go about handling a pandemic? Because, like, we're all really interested in how we actually make communism happen. So and I think it does speak to the need for some form of central planning, certainly, but not necessarily carried out by a state. Right. Maybe we could have some form of nice federation, because unless you're like a full on and prim, I think most people acknowledge the need for some sort of um, governance, certainly in a world as large and complex as ours. Yeah. And I mean, I'm reluctant to get too into you know, as, as Mark said, the, the sort of writing recipes for the kitchens of the future aspect of this and like or the or the aspect of it that sort of debates what what is a state or what aspects of what we consider the state are or not kind of transhistorically necessary or at least necessary in an immediate post-capitalist context. I do think, though, that like, for example, you brought this idea of dealing with a pandemic and I'm not going to sit here and claim that I I, I can tell you just in a clean and easy way how a communist society would handle a pandemic. It's, it's complicated, obviously, and it's the, by its nature, kind of global and interconnected nature of a virus uh, makes, makes it very difficult to figure out how a kind of a decentralized and autonomous kind of society would deal with it. At the same time, I mean, I do think if we want to find the sort of silver linings of communism within the present, you look at it the way that, for example, Americans are trying to deal with the pandemic that's upon us in the face of both a political and an economic structure that's making it extremely difficult, right? People are trying to social distance and quarantine. They're talking to each other, in some cases, pressuring each other to be to sort of take responsibility for each other's safety and health and well-being. And sure, we can talk about how so many people are not taking it seriously and they're breaking the quarantine and they're going out and partying and this and that. But look, this is happening in a context where so many people are, you know, dependent on doing things that are medically dangerous in order to make the money to pay their rent in a situation where there's we have a state that not that isn't not only isn't helping but is actively making things worse in a lot of ways and nevertheless people are doing whatever they can to try to take the actions that allow us to collectively live in a healthier and safer way and so that to me is at least somewhat promising for what would be possible if we could at least get the obvious political and economic impediments out of the way you know that make it so hard for us to just like you know, stay home and take proper precautions and do all these other things that we we know we should do. Uh, even, you know, that, it, that people are going to such lengths to do those things now, that people are doing things like, you know, all over the country, like getting together collectives to like sew DIY masks because nobody can get their shit together to produce enough at an industrial scale 
for hospital employees. Like that is indicative to me of the fact that there are, you know, not to be so too like rosy about or too like blithe about like the challenges in any society of dealing with collect, you know, something like a collective public health problem. I do think that there's some encouraging aspects of like what people are capable of, even in what are extremely, extremely, in a lot of ways, dystopian conditions. Oh, yeah, for sure. And we talked a lot about that in our episode on mutual aid as well, which uh, everyone should listen to if they haven't yet. Um, I I think an interesting uh, alternate vision for how a communist society might manage scarcity without states or markets is Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. And I want to give you props for including lots of good examples from Ursula Le Guin, as well as Kim Stanley Robinson. We stand, stand. King, king, uh, yes. How how the future could go. But um, I think The Dispossessed is an interesting vision of how a communist society or an anarcho-syndicalist society or whatever you want to call it might manage scarcity without markets, but with a small administrative I don't know what you want to call it, whatever you call a state that's not a state, <laughs> basically distributing resources and handing out assignments of tasks for people to do, um, sometimes with the use of computers. It's been a while since I've read this book. But um, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of um, thinking through how we could organize these kinds of things um, in a scarce world uh, without the use of markets, because that is the ultimate political horizon that we all have here at the Antifada. Well, well, and I would just well, I would say it in a slightly different way, which is, and this is the way that I say it in the in the book, which is that my horizon isn't even necessarily beyond markets as such, because uh, I think that is often a, a, you know a terminology that that obscures more than it reveals. Uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to have a market in the sense of like having some kinds of having a, a price and some kind of tokens that you use to to trade things right. Um, the problem we, as I see it, the, the fundamental problem that we face in capitalism today is not that not necessarily that there's markets, but specifically our problem is that we have a labor market that our that our our lives and ourselves are the the sort of fundamental thing that we must buy and sell uh and that like you can imagine all kinds of and i talk about this a little bit in the book you can think about if you think about trying to organize sort of scarcity in a post-capitalist society you can imagine that like yeah there's like a you know however you want to think of it a carbon budget or like a resource budget that like we have to kind of keep to and you have to have some way of kind of arbitrating who gets to consume how much basically and ideally you would not want to do that by a bunch of just kind of bureaucratic directives that sort of assigns everyone so many cans of beans or whatever you'd rather have it a little bit looser so that somebody might want more of this and less of that or you know i i is it more important to be able to eat a steak or drink a scotch or drive a car once in a while or something like that uh, and that there's sort of market mechanisms that you can use to figure things out like that, which don't have to be dehumanizing and exploitative so long as the market mechanism does not extend to human labor itself. Yeah, I think before capitalism existed, you saw money and you saw markets, but they did very different things. Uh, you know, um, the I. When when I think about a post-capitalist future, I mostly see an end to the accumulation of a surplus, 
by a uh, small group of individuals known as capitalists. I do think that as a society, you would have to have find some way uh, to put like you said, like a, a cost that could be based on carbon, it could be based on calories people have proposed. And if those are not accumulatable, if they're usable for consumption, then you're, you're dealing with a situation that it's not fair to ascribe markets like capitalist markets to. But it's an interesting question, you know? Yeah, it is. And then sort of like part of the reason I, you know, pursued this direction rather than more traditional kinds of social, the more traditional kinds of social theory that I was trained on is that I wanted to kind of open up these imaginative directions without necessarily having to come to any firm conclusion because I don't think one can if one's serious about, you know, the society being actually made by the self-activity of people. I don't think one can decide any of these things in advance, but it is still, I think, helpful for us in the present to be able to at least imagine ourselves into the future a little bit. Oh, yeah. That is our favorite game here at the Antifada, I think. <laughs> I think it's important to... And, and we keep losing it. We're losing the game. What the uh, hell? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. I think it's good to have things to put on our vision board to help people imagine a world after capitalism. Plug it, plug it into our revolutionary flowchart. Certainly, certainly. It's, uh, it's synergy. So... In, in talking about the transition to communism, I want to get into the UBI stuff because that is an incredibly controversial idea on the left and in general right now, right? Because <clears throat> you talk about the ways that a UBI could be sort of a non-reformist reform that smooths our transition to communism without uh, a revolution, a social, a violent revolution, basically. But if the capitalist class still owns all the property without rent control uh, of any kind, um, wouldn't they just raise the rents in order to compensate for UBI? Um, and and how smooth would this transition be? Like, I don't really see the capitalist class giving up the basic power relations of capitalism without a real revolutionary rupture. And I'd like to counterpose it with some of what we talked about in our episode on Gilles Dauvet and communization theory, because um, communization theory also picks up on the current in Marx, where he talks about abolishing the distinction between work and leisure time. But in order to get to that place in communization theory, it involves a massive revolutionary rupture where we expropriate the ruling class by force and communize the world in a very, uh, shall we say, non-incremental way. So I guess, what am I getting at here? How, how would you respond to charges of like sort of a utopian techno-determinism uh, when talking about this strategy? And yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, yeah, you're... Right, and there, and I, and I'm pretty sympathetic to a lot of these, the critiques of basic income that go along the lines of this ends up just being sort of a subsidy to a certain model of capitalism in which, yeah, it just gets absorbed by various rentiers, by by landlords, um, it just gets you know gets funneled back into consumption and so on. Uh, I'm not, you know, I've written and sort of somewhat advocated for basic income for a long time, but I'm certainly not, I think. One of the more not uh, I don't I don't take kind of the, the the mainstream view of what is not a mainstream view, but like the my perspective on basic income was not ever that it would lead to a kind of a 
either a smooth and you know gradual transition to communism or to a sort of stabilized capitalism. And those are the two kind of perspectives that you see in in much of the literature. Um, particularly the idea that like basic income can kind of fix the problem of like, you know, automation related job loss by just kind of creating this backstop that gives people enough to live on, right? That's like the Andrew Shout Yang. Shout out to the Yang gang. Right. That's like the Andrew Yang conception of this, right? Um, my, and, my, and then there's, and then you have the like old, you know, Van Paris and Van Der Veen capitalist road to communism argument, which was more a thought experiment than a real proposal. I think, you know, it's a philosophy paper. It's closer to my book than it is an actual policy proposal in that way. But it, but at least it it sketched out this idea of what might happen if people had a basic income that was enough that they could start dropping out of the labor force, start doing some of the communist experimentation that we were talking about, could like eventually shrink sort of the paid portion of the economy to the point where, you know, capitalism is small enough to drown it in a bathtub to steal a phrase from the right. Uh, and like, nice. you know, and then you get, you get to communism that way, whether or not, you know, even Philippe von Paris and Robert Vanderveen ever even believed that that was actually possible. I certainly never did. And I, I've always viewed basic income neither as a way to gradually get to communism nor as a way to stabilize capitalism, but precisely as something that's meant to cause a crisis. It's meant uh, the Piven Cloward Piven strategy, Cloward if, strategy you will. if you will. Yes, essentially, it's that just blown up to the entire society. And in fact, the Piven Cloward strategy itself was meant to the point. The end point of the, their strategy was to get the basic income. Right. That was the point of overloading the welfare system by having everyone who is eligible apply. It was to basically force the government to give in and give everyone a guaranteed income. Um, and the idea the I had was just you if you push farther than that, if you had a guaranteed income, if people did start dropping out of the labor force, people did start, you know, organizing their lives outside of labor. Uh, if people use the basic income also to supplement their ability to organize within paid labor, because if you have a basic income to fall back on, it's like having, you know, a built-in strike fund. If you're also still working a job that you're trying to organize, right? There's all these ways in which it, it empowers the working class and creates potential points of leverage, which is why, of course, the you know the capitalist class finds it threatening and it, to the extent that some parts of the ruling class have said nice things about the basic income they tend to want to keep it at a low level and keep it within certain bounds and so on but ultimately the end game for me or the mid game i guess is that you do eventually once you get something like a basic income in place it makes workers harder to control it cr makes it a little easier to organize it creates a thing that people can organize around to try to both preserve and actually expand and that ultimately that does cause call both capitalist political power and capitalist property relations into question and that does lead to some moment of rupture like and i'm that to me is the feature not a bug of the of the demand it's it is meant to be sort of a, a transitional demand or a disruptive demand or something that that leads that leads us to a place that calls capitalism into question, partly because it allows us to break down this sort of attachment to work or the sort of reification and fetishization of paid work that we have in a society where, yeah, everyone's working jobs. Most of them, most of us maybe don't like the jobs that we're working, but we have to do them, and so we can't see any other way. You know, once you start to call that into question, that can break down, you know, it breaks down economic and political discipline, but it also breaks down the ideological discipline of just identifying the meaning of your life with whatever job uh, you happen to be able to get. And again, as we were sort of talking about before, in some ways, this crisis has called that question in a different way anyway. So it almost makes that aspect of the basic income seem like 
to, to be coming too late, but it, mean, but it means that it, the demand has, has meaning in a different way, I think, now, because it's, it's a way of acknowledging the reality of the situation and just saying that the, you know, the scale of need is such relative to the paid work available that you know, this, this can make sense as a short-term demand, as a short-term response to the crisis, but that that can be the basis for a longer-term project of organizing that that does lead to crisis, that does lead to destabilization, and that, so that it's not that the basic income by itself fixes any, everything, and it's not that the basic income by itself ends capitalism, it's just that it opens up, it, it's just a lever that just opens up certain, uh, certain possibilities, and that destabilizes certain aspects of the way things are now. Um, but, you know, to go back to where, you, you know, so you started with your question, how do you make sure that doesn't all just get sucked up into to rents and things like that? That's why the basic income by itself, you know, is not the answer. Or if we're going to demand it, it has to be demanded within a certain context. Because, yes, if you get a check every month, but you're still, your rent is still going up and you're still paying health insurance premiums that are going up every month or every year, then, yes, nothing has been accomplished other than just sort of moving some things around on the spreadsheet. You're not actually changing how free you are from the control of bosses and landlords and insurance companies and so on. So that's why I think that like a left-wing, non-sort of libertarian, non-Yangist kind of version of a basic income has to exist in the context of things like a right to housing and a right to health care and right to education. Hell yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. Uh, I think it's interesting that if, if you, if, if somebody from the 60s who was thinking about universal basic income back then, whether it be Andre Gores or, or one of the more uh, capitalistic futurists who, who believe that a, a universal basic income was inevitable within 10 or 20 years because of automation, if they heard us talking now, they would think, like, why are they even debating having it? Like, it's so obvious that this is necessary, and I'm surprised they don't have it yet. Um, which I think goes to show that a lot of the way we uh, practice futurism just assumes that certain th- logical things will come to pass. And um, I, I even thought this a little bit when I was reading your book, e- even though it's not very old. Uh, you started out by saying that two specters are haunting the 21st century, which is climate change and automation. And I wonder if, if that's already a little bit dated, not that climate change and automation have gone away. But uh, I think that this crisis is showing us that climate change is just one catastrophe among many that we're seeing in this like strange rhythm over and over again. And to the extent that we have been automated since the 70s or even over the last 10 years, it's done nothing to make the economy more resilient to this pandemic, even though we saw it coming with a few months. You know, it's not like the economy is just automated. You know, there's still uh, uh, mi- migrant laborers still have to risk getting covid to pick uh food to keep everybody uh uh um, healthy so i'm i'm wondering if uh if maybe has this crisis rethought made you rethink that schema at all well it certainly made me re change my points of emphasis i mean i i sort of say this i think in in the jackman essay that you referenced that i put out this week uh the party of death where you know, I, I mentioned that, like, yeah, automation was the focus in the book, and that's that's still there. And I sort of put it to one side and say, yeah, this pandemic reveals something else, something more immediate that is also uh, leading us to be treated as disposable. Um, but, yeah, it's sort of, you know, in a way, yeah, I guess I've been sort of hoist by the same petard I used in the book when I was talking about Star Trek, which was 
to talk about this idea, I think sort of like you were saying, that there's a tendency, particularly in liberal thought, to think that if something seems just and it is possible, then why wouldn't it eventually happen? And so in the Star Trek universe, the, that, that was the, the sort of thing that as a Marxist I identified as the, the weakness of its vision was that it said it posited its science fictional premises were you know, this idea of free energy and replicators. But then it just sort of assumed that like, well, if you have those technological prerequisites, then surely eventually you get to a post-scarcity, post-class society. Right. Uh, and my, basically my mashup of Karl Marx with Star Trek was to say, well, no, you don't. Uh, that only happens under certain political conditions if the certain political forces come together to actually overturn the old order and replace it with one that's adequate to that material basis. Uh, and, I, I, and in that respect, you know, my view has not changed, that like we are still in a world where there are technical possibilities and also ecological limits that mandate, that make possible a different form of society and potentially a more emancipated form of society. But yeah, we don't get there automatically. It's, we don't get there because it makes sense. You know, we get there because the, both the material conditions and the political forces come together to actually make a break. Yeah, that uh, that's one thing I really, really enjoyed about your book because I am a sci-fi person, but like you said, oftentimes that X factor is missing. Of and, and like we know, even in the present tense, like if we were only doing things based on what made sense and what was possible, we would have at least socialism by now. So... So props to you for centering that in your analysis. Well, you know, props to the, the entire Marxist tradition that I was raised in for pointing that, you know, even in contrast, not just to a lot of science fiction, but to other forms of socialism that are more based in sort of ethics or in kind of just a scientific inevitability. You know, the, to me, one of the central contributions of Marxism is, is that, you know, people make their own history, but not in conditions of their own choosing, that that dialectic of the, you know, of the movement and of the historical context is sort of central to how I understand history, how I understand politics. I, I mean, I wanted to say another thing that I like about uh, the idea of a UBI, which I, I agree. I think a lot of the left has been a little too quick to discard it just because it is. Well, there are some people who are like, well, anything that's too closely associated with libertarians has to be bad in all its forms. But there's also like this sort of vulgar workerist element of the left that dislikes the idea that people would find fulfillment being freed from the traditional workplace. Um, and this portion of the left is often very hostile to social reproduction theory for similar reasons and not necessarily in bad faith. I think they're just um, stuck in this 20th century paradigm of what it means to be an organizer, which is very much centered around the traditional workplace. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it, I mean, to me, it's missing one of the most valuable currents that runs through the through the Marxist tradition and also other parts of the socialist tradition, you know, people like Oscar Wilde, who's one of my heroes, but, but you find it in Marx and in Lukács and in others, which is that the, the historical destiny of the working class is not to realize itself in the sense of just like taking over work and running it as before and we'll be workers and have the same jobs except that, you know, we'll, they'll be cooperatively owned instead of owned by capitalists. The point is to abolish the working class as such for our, our identities and our social being to no longer be defined by 
jobs as we understand them, which is not to say that labor ceases or that work ceases or that meaningful activity ceases, but that that would happen under entirely different terms than we think of them today. And so the, that the attachment to work, if it's an attachment to anything that looks like capitalist work, is actually an impediment to that revolutionary horizon. Deadass. So, okay, do you guys have um, any more questions or should I close it out with this one? Uh, I'm good, Andy. I'll close it out. Andy's good. All right, all right. So let's skip to the end of the book. Your conclusion, you talk about how exterminism could potentially turn into communism after the surplus populations have all been killed. And that part, I was like, I don't know. I don't know, man. Assuming that climate change continues, or even if it doesn't, wouldn't the rich just turn on each other as they compete for scarcer resources or clout or whatever? I mean, maybe. That was only just one. I mean, the purpose of that, of laying that out was, I mean, it was just to be a little bit of a mindfuck, to be like, let's not pretend that, like, we, we all dream about the Star Trek future, but also these aren't perfect these, these may not be perfect people. They may just be people that, you know, try to pretend that they aren't the beneficiaries of a genocide that happened somewhere in the past, to which, if it doesn't sound plausible, uh, you know, have you ever grown up in a society that was founded on settler colonialism and genocide? But anyway. Um, I think we all have, but also um, America is bad. Right. Let's not right. wait it with wait the it good with future. future. Right. But my point is that, like, you can get, there's ways to get from each one to each of the others. And that just, you know, I was thinking sort of one, sort of a certain number of steps into the future, but that, like, history never ends, right? You, the problematics that we deal with now, the particularly capitalist problematics of how to live, basically to live together with one another and reproduce ourselves as a society you know, the specific problematics of how we do that will change and will not be the ones that are confronting us now, but they will, they will still exist. And so that there's ways, you know, and, and that history doesn't always sort of move onward and upward, right? It's not a like teleological Whiggish history where we just get, we get better and better or worse and worse. It's like we can, we can live in a fundamental, we can come to live in a fundamentally different society and then that's better. And then like you said, there, somebody can figure out a way to start monopolizing resources or getting over on other people in, and I would stress that like, it's not so much that people will continue to have fight over status hierarchies and try to get over on each other and all of that. That's maybe will always happen, but I don't care that much about that in the sense that it, as long as people are not, you know, starving and suffering and dying because of it, then so what? The, the question is, you know, to what degree can we main, create and then maintain a future in which everyone has free and equal access to the basics of what they need to survive and live a good life? I, I reserve the right to be a petty bitch, no matter the mode of production, no matter what mode of production it is. Exactly. Thank you. Thank Sean's you. Sean's going to be a shit poster in the morning a construction worker for, you know, a couple hours in the afternoon and a gamer. Uh, hour and a half. Gamer for most of the night. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I just, if people, if anybody, if I ever, you know, more often my problem is I run across people that are too, I think, pessimistic and too dystopian and too willing to get stuck on the sort of exterminist possibilities. But if I ever run across somebody that's like too, you know, too optimistic about just how 
we're all going to get along and everything's going to be great and rosy and perfect in the future. I'm like, no, you do realize like a lot of what communist society would be like will kind of just be like Reddit. <laughs> oh boy. God. Oof. Not, and that's the that's the good version. No, let's not put that in the atmosphere. No one's going to be a communist then. <laughs> well, it's it, or everybody will and I'll just be like more and more deranged subreddits, you know. Well, it's it's well, the question is if if the choice is that or, you know, repeatedly uh being wiped out by pandemics and forced into increasingly a brutal and impossible labor by our capitalist overlords. You know, I'd I'd rather live, live under Reddit communism. I think. <laughs> All right, you've convinced me, but we're still getting rid of Twitter. <laughs> wow, that's, that's I think that's a uh, wrong words coming from you, Sean. <laughs> I hope to to live in a period where it's no longer no longer socially useful to use Twitter as a posting device. someday. Wow. That's that's my transitional wow. demand. Well, I look forward to my new life as a commissary cook for a part of the time, a cat petter for more of the time, and a dessert taster for the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs>